The sun broke over the valley with a piercing bright light and washed over him like a warm breeze. His eyelids cracked open and took in the day's first light as his ears were serenaded with the sweet songs of what seemed like ten thousand birds singing their morning ode to the new day. As he kicked off his blankets and got to his feet, he breathed in a clean, purifying breath of air. The smell of the tall evergreens all around him was so strong he could almost taste them. Breaking a few twigs to get a fire going, he then set out a pot of water to boil and picked up his notebook and a pen and began to write. Looking eastward from the summit of Pancheco Pass one shining morning, a landscape was displayed that after all my wanderings still appears as the most beautiful I have ever beheld. And from the eastern boundary of this vast golden flower bed rose the mighty Sierra, miles high and so gloriously coloured and so radiant. It seemed not clothed with light, but wholly composed of it, like the wall of some celestial city. John Muir, The Yosemite, 1912 Virtuous Man, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. This season will take a detailed look at the lives of five men who each exemplify a crucial virtue of life through not just their words, but their actions. And from these examples, you'll be inspired to cultivate a life of virtue of your own. Welcome to episode two, The Preservation of John Muir hosted by Jamie Adams. With expert insight from environmental historian and author Donald Worster, and also from Dennis Williams, author and professor of history and culture at Southern Nazarene University. A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short yet chooses not to allow his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, it is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. This episode's virtue is preservation. Preservation is the act of protecting a resource to promote its welfare from outside threats and intrusions. From the early 20th century to the modern day, preservationists have come in many different molds, sharing similarities and also many differing opinions on how to best preserve the wildernesses of our world. Perhaps the most famous of the 20th century's great preservationists was John Muir. In this episode, we will attempt to get to know the real Muir what he fought for, his adventures into the untouched areas of the United States, his faith, and his struggles with balancing his adventures and his family. And, through Mir's life, we will seek to better understand how preservation can be something we all seek to uphold in our lives, no matter what resource it is we hold dear. John Muir was born in 1838 in the town of Dunbar in East Lothian 
on the east coast of Scotland. John was the third of eight children of his father Daniel and mother Anne. His father was a severely strict man, occasionally beating discipline into John and his siblings with a whip. Daniel packed up his moderately successful business as a grain merchant in 1849 and much like the Carnegies from Dunfermline, moved his large family across the Atlantic to America. They purchased and settled on a rich farmland in Portage, Wisconsin. As an adolescent and young teen, life was rough for young John and a lot of the menial farm duties were placed on his shoulders. His father wouldn't allow John to waste daylight on reading. He only allowed him to spend time on schoolwork and biblical reading. By the time he was 11, John could recite three quarters of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament. But John had a passion for inventions, so he asked for permission to rise early so he could study engineering and work on his inventions. To many in today's age, this would mean 5 or 6 a.m. But in the farming days of the mid-1800s, that was a few hours into the workday. John created an early rising machine that would throw him out of bed at 1 o'clock in the morning so he could study and be ready for the workday. He later showed off the machine at the 1860 Wisconsin State Fair, one of his many inventions. Some of these are on display in the Wisconsin State Library in Madison. This is Donald Worcester. And they're carved out of wood, meticulously carved and assembled, the gears and all that. They're not metal. And he, he carved all these things and he embellished them with vines, and, you know, um, and he drew pic pictures similarly. So there was, on one side, this guy who, who you know, liked it, could use a stopwatch, was very efficient, timed everything, always trying to figure out how to do something more efficiently, how to make a machine that would help you do that. And this other guy who wanted nothing to do with that. At the age of 22, Muir enrolled at the University of Wisconsin in Madison to study science and engineering. It was in his dorm room here that he made perhaps his greatest invention. Another device to wake him up for his studies, the clock woke him up, lit a lamp to illuminate his room, and after the timer gave him a few minutes to get dressed, set out a stack of books for him to study, opening the books for him. It was in his time at Madison that he met a woman by the name of Jean Carr, the wife of his professor at the university. She introduced him to the science of botany, and this relationship would steer Muir towards the fledgling science. Their friendship grew over the years through correspondence over letters, and it is unclear what the dynamics of their relationship were, motherly, sisterly, or something more intimate. Muir studied for three years at the university, but in 1863, he left school without a degree. To him, he had learned what he needed to know, and he was now off to try the real thing for himself. He followed his brother Daniel to Ontario in 1864. Daniel had traveled north to Canada, seeking to escape the military draft with the American Civil War in its infancy. He would stay in the Ontario area for the next few years, exploring the woods and swamps of the north coast of Lake Huron and hiking parts of the Niagara Escarpment, a steep cliff section of land running from New York through Ontario to Northern Illinois. This outdoor exploration wasn't a newfound passion though. His love for everything wild was first aroused back in his days as a young child in Scotland 
when his grandfather would take him on walks in the Scottish countryside and from the many forays to the coastline with boyhood friends in Dunbar. In 1866, Muir returned south to the United States and moved to Indianapolis to work at Osgood Smith & Co, a manufacturer of hubs and spokes for carriages. He was promoted to supervisor and his inventions made many improvements in efficiency at the factory. Life was good at the factory, but at the end of March in 1867, Muir had a serious accident that wouldn't just change his occupation, but his entire outlook on life itself. While tightening a spinning leather belt on a machine in the factory, he lost his grip and the metal awl he was using flew back and pierced his right eye, puncturing his cornea. My eye is gone! Closed forever on God's beauty! The workers heard him cry. Muir would spend the next several weeks bedridden, in a darkened room, to allow his right eye to heal. His left eye had temporarily sunk into sympathetic blindness and he sat pondering what this would mean for his future. In a letter to his mother he wrote, I am completely prostrate, and the eye is lost. I have been confined to bed since the accident and for the first two or three days could not eat or drink a mouthful. But I am a little better today and hope to be at work again in a month or two. I am condemned by the doctor to a dark room for some two weeks. I am surprised that from apparently so small a shock, my whole system should be so completely stunned. My love to all, John Muir. I have written at random and in the dark, but hope you will be able to read my meaning. And in, the, in that time, he has this existential crisis. You know, he's sort of asking the question, so what's the purpose of my life? This is Dennis Williams. You know, the, he thought that the purpose of his life when he was at the University of Wisconsin was to become a doctor. Then he realized that he had a lot of skills and those skills seemed to be about machinery. But he's struck with, if I, you know, if I can get out of here and be able to see again, what is it that would be the fulfillment of my life? And the answer that he comes to is to, you know, essentially find and have a deeper experience with God by May, he had regained most of the sight in his left eye. The consistent correspondence with friends like Gene Carr helped lift him out of his despair. Carr in particular encouraged him to not lose hope that he would see the wild places he had always dreamed about. You will take a richer heart and a clearer mind with which to interpret them for this retirement, dear John. I've often in my heart wondered what God was training you for. He gave you the eye within the eye to see in all natural objects the realized ideas of his mind. He gave you pure tastes and the steady preference of whatsoever is most lonely and excellent. He made you a more individualized existence than is common. Make your mark now and then, dear, on these envelopes, for better or worse, as you feel. Your loving friend, Jean Carr Having regained his eyesight back fully in both eyes, and rejuvenated by the chance for introspection the weeks spent in darkness had given him, he vowed to leave his career as a mechanical inventor behind and pursue the Earth's wild places. He never really wanted to be a part of industrial, commercial, mainstream of the country. He had the ability to work as an engineer. If he'd been around at the 
after uh, MIT had been founded. He might have been an MIT student or Caltech or something. He had the ability to do that. But he, he was always yearning to get back to wild country, to go on long hikes, as he'd been doing in Canada just before he came. But he always needed to earn a living. He was a poor kid, a working class kid from the farm country. So he had to have a job. But I think the accident, that was the all the excuse he needed. When he, when he lay there thinking, what am I doing with my life? He already was primed. This affliction has driven me to the sweet fields. God has to nearly kill us sometimes to teach us lessons. I bid adieu to all my mechanical inventions determined to devote the rest of my life to the study of the inventions of God. With a deeper appreciation for the beauty of nature and an even keener interest in seeing it, Muir abandoned his career as an inventor and engineer and set off on a 1,000 mile trip from Indiana to Georgia, mostly on foot. In September of 1867, he took a train from Indianapolis to Louisville, Kentucky then started off on foot southeast toward the Gulf of Mexico, with no specific route in mind. My plan was simply to push on in a general southward direction by the wildest, leafiest and least trodden way I could find, promising the greatest extent of virgin forest. He travelled with only the clothes on his back and a rucksack containing poems by Robert Burns, John Milton's Paradise Lost, a New Testament, the bare essentials, and a plant press for his botanical collections. His journey took him through the forests and caves of Kentucky. He depended upon the kindness of strangers and his eccentric personality and non-threatening demeanor to garner carriage and ferry rides in the general direction he was headed. On one occasion, he passed a black man driving a team of oxen and rode with him a while. Sparking a conversation, the man told him of Confederates who were tearing up a railroad track and how he watched them run like hell when they thought they saw Union soldiers approaching. He enjoyed this conversation with the man and even admired the keen insight he had shared on their short ride. Many of these Kentucky Negroes are shrewd and intelligent and when warmed upon a subject that interests them are eloquent by no mean degree. This short encounter demonstrates the kind of man Muir was. He was the type of man who would strike up a conversation with just about anyone, no matter their background, occupation, or race. Though his heart was in the wild, away from the bustle of the big city, he had an insatiable appetite for good conversation. He met all kinds of people, as I emphasize in the book, which I don't think has been emphasized enough by other people. He was indiscriminate. He, he, he stayed with blacks, he stayed with whites, he stayed with poor black slaves who'd just been emancipated. And when you put the, them with the whites he met along the way, I would say, on balance, he actually seems to have admired or liked and got along with the blacks a little better than many of the whites even. On September 6th, he arrived at Mammoth Cave, about 100 miles southwest of Louisville. He was amazed and elated that it looked practically untouched by the presence of people. Continuing south, he was overcome by the lushness of the Kentucky forests. Far the grandest of all Kentucky plants are her noble oaks. They are the master existences of her exuberant forests. Here is Eden, the paradise of oaks. 
After crossing into Kentucky on September 10th, he began ascending the Cumberland Mountains, about 100 miles east of Nashville. He reached the summit in about seven hours and made note of the strenuousness the climb was for a man accustomed to flat ground. These mountains reaching 4,200 feet were the first he had ever had the chance to climb, and the views from the top inspired him to seek out even greater peaks. He travelled through Jamestown and commented how bleak of a place it was, calling it a poor, rickety, thrice-dead village. The towns dotting his path through Tennessee had been ravaged by the Civil War, which had ended just two years earlier, with the state providing more regiments to the Confederate Army than any other state. Muir passed many empty houses, being told their former occupants had either been killed or driven away by the war. While staying in a guest house of a blacksmith and his wife, the man challenged Muir on his journey, saying there was real work to be done by every man, and that did not include wandering the wild looking for weeds and flowers. Muir replied, You are a believer in the Bible, are you not? Well, you know Solomon was a strong-minded man and he is generally believed to have been the very wisest man the world ever saw. And yet he considered it was worthwhile to study plants, not only to go and pick them as I am doing, but to study them. And again, do you not remember that Christ told his disciples to consider the lilies how they grow and compared their beauty with Solomon in all his glory? Now, whose advice am I to take? Yours or Christ's? The blacksmith was satisfied with his answer, and he took the chance to warn Muir of the bandits and rebel guerrillas still roaming the path he was taking to the gulf. But in his mind he had nothing to lose, and others had nothing to gain by robbing him. So he continued on, fully confident in the worthiness of his endeavour. Well, he was collecting and pressing these plants and making a, a great collection of plants he'd never seen before, and many of the southern plants are quite unusual. He went through what is now the Great Smoky Mountains National Park area, which is one of the most important botanical areas in the United States. So he was busy. As he neared the North Carolina state line, the views became eye-catching once more, and the thousands of acres of lush forest and mountain foothills inspired him to keep trekking on. He went through the town of Murphy on North Carolina's extreme southwest corner, and explored the surrounding groves and gorges with a local man. He even visited the site where General Scott had removed the Cherokee Indians from as part of the Indian Removal Act. Descending out of the mountains and crossing into Georgia on September 21st, he passed through the fine town of Gainesville. He admired the Chattanooga River with its lush, vibrant oaks and blossoming flowers along its banks, noting that it was the first truly southern stream he had seen. Georgia had been one of the last states to be overcome by the Union Army's conquering march south, but in November and December of 1864, General William Tecumseh Sherman left a path of scorched earth, burning Atlanta to the ground, and then waging a path of destruction and death through the heart of Georgia to the port town of Savannah. Sherman's march to the sea, as it would be called, left railroads, infrastructure, and farmland in ruins. Muir met a cotton farmer who had hid his farming equipment at the bottom of his mill pond before Sherman came through and commented, if Bill Sherman should come down now without his army, he would never go back. But Muir's route, far to the north of the path Sherman had taken, bypassed the destruction that was still on full display. He walked dozens of miles a day between Athens and Augusta, one day walking 40, 
and arrived at the Savannah River on the 1st of October. He spent the night with a welcoming family on the way to Savannah and noted the conversations on the political happenings in the obviously still fractured country. He heard long recitals of war happenings, discussion of the slave question, and northern politics. A thoroughly characteristic southern family, refined in manners and kind, but immovably prejudiced on everything connected to slavery. After enjoying the changing landscape and seeing innumerable botanical species completely new to him, he arrived in Savannah on October 8th. He would spend the next few days waiting for mail to arrive via express from his brother in Portage that included money he so desperately needed. He was positively skint and unable to barter for lodging, he found himself sleeping among the tombs of Bonaventure Cemetery. A few days later, his $75 finally arrived from Wisconsin, and after buying a loaf of gingerbread and consuming it, he bought a ticket aboard a coastal steamer bound for Fernandina, Florida, where he admired a large cabbage palmetto palm tree and sketched it in his journal. He had reached the so-called land of flowers 45 days after leaving Indiana, and traveling southwest along the flat swampy state, he passed through Gainesville and eventually arrived in the Gulf port of Cedar Keys. During the week-long journey, Muir had seen many creatures that frightened him, especially Florida's numerous alligators. But he grew to have an understanding that they were just another one of God's creatures. Though alligators and snakes, etc., naturally are palest, they are not mysterious evils. They dwell happily in these flowery wilds, are part of God's family, unfallen, undepraved, and cared for with the same species of tenderness and love as is bestowed on the angels in heaven or saints on earth. By late October, Muir decided to find work at a sawmill in Cedar Keys, but a day later he began to fall ill. Feeling fatigued with a headache, he nursed it as best he could, but a debilitating fever took him the next day, and he would require regular care from Sarah Hodgson, the mill owner's wife, for the next two months. He'd come down with malaria, most likely from his time spent sleeping out in the open in Bonaventure Cemetery in Savannah. No one knew the cause in 1867, and it would be a further 30 years until doctors discovered the parasite that caused the disease and narrowed down the transmission vector to infected mosquitoes. After a long, grueling recovery from this second crisis of physical health, Muir was again forced to ponder his own vulnerabilities. He realized that a body so used to the temperate climates of coastal Scotland and the northern United States was ill-suited for the swampy, humid, malaria-ridden Gulf states. He thinks he's got a fever from the swamps. That was the theory, miasma, a theory of swamps causing fevers. And he was going to die from it. And he was very close to it. He was delirious. He was weak. He could hardly walk for weeks. And he, in this case, though, he doesn't say, nature is hurting me, nature is... He's saying to himself, I'm in the wrong place. If I get sick, it's because I'm in the wrong place. Why blame nature, you know, for having these... I, I walk through all those swamps. <laughs> it's my fault. And if I don't like it, I should get someplace else. He's in a terrible state, delirium. But he develops that really into a kind of of morality that, uh, you know, it isn't nature that's out to get us. We just have to learn to live with what nature is and not always be 
assuming that nature is to be bended to our will, drain the swamps, you know, kill kill everything that kills us. His his idea was we need first restraint. You know, we need to be more restrained in our, our own, and control ourselves first and foremost. And I would say that is a moment for him of incredible moral breakthrough. Muir bid the Hodgins farewell, thanking Sarah for perhaps saving his life, and boarded the Island Bell schooner bound for Cuba. He spent the month of January on the island, exploring the less populated areas and botanizing. But his health did not improve considerably, and the heat of Cuba compounded the effects he still felt from his bout with malaria. He also could not find passage to South America, his planned destination after his sojourn on the Caribbean island. It was then that he saw an advertisement in a New York newspaper for cheap fare to California. Talking himself aboard a merchant ship loaded with oranges, he was soon headed north towards New York. The 12-day trip gave Muir time for a cathartic look at the past four months. He had traveled through the southern United States, seeing both the great wonders of nature and the horrible signs of war and human calamity. The trip had ignited his love for botany all the more, and had also ignited a strong will to preserve the wild growth from human corruption. Once he arrived in New York, he would be off to California via a roundabout trip along the Gulf Coast, through Panama via rail, and up the Pacific Coast to San Francisco. It was here he would finally find a place he could call home, and truly begin his work as a preservationist. Muir arrived in San Francisco Bay in early April of 1868, and after spending just a day in the quickly growing metropolis, he set out for the Yosemite with an Englishman he had met on the journey to California, and they camped there for a week. His elation at the springtime botanical wonders of the Yosemite Valley made him at once forsake the Florida that had been so harsh on his health, both physically and mentally. Florida is indeed a land of flowers, but for every flower creature that dwells in its most delightsome places, more than a hundred are living here. Here they are not sprinkled apart with grass between as in our prairies, but grasses are sprinkled among the flowers. He worked as a farmhand in the central valley to earn enough to keep himself fed and a roof over his head. Then in the fall, an Irish immigrant named Smokey Jack offered him one dollar a day and room and board to shepherd a flock of 2,000 sheep through the winter in a place called Twenty Hill Hollow, just west of Yosemite. He accepted the job, which gave him time and opportunity to continue his botanical studies throughout the Sierra foothills. He led his herd of sheep to the Tuolumne Meadows in the High Sierra. The sheep under his care became an incessant source of his disgust as they devoured everything in sight. Sheep, like people, are ungovernable when hungry. Accepting my guarded lily gardens, almost every leaf that these hoofed locusts can reach within a radius of a mile or two from camp has been devoured. He made the first recorded ascent of the 10,912-foot Cathedral Peak on September 7th. As he made his way down the other side of the peak, he was reminded about the danger these granite monsters posed to one with no mountaineering experience or equipment. Had a rather difficult walk and creep across an immense snow and ice cliff, which gradually increased in steepness as I advanced until it was almost impassable. Slipped on a dangerous place, but managed to stop by digging my heels into the thawing surface just on the brink 
of a yawing ice gulf. Camping another night in the high country, then heading back to the lowlands the following day, he could hardly contain himself as he wrote by light of the campfire that night. How delightful it is to be alone here. How wild everything is. Wild as the sky and as pure. Never shall I forget this big divine day. The cathedral and its thousands of cassiope bells and the landscapes around them. And this camp in the grey crags above the woods with its stars and streams and snow. These forays into the Yosemite's seldom trodden places were not merely for his personal enjoyment. During his excursions through the mighty Yosemite Valley, he made astute geological observations about the curvature of the valley and the peaks of Half Dome, El Capitan, and Sentinel Dome. His theory was that this mighty chasm between these famous peaks had been cut by the slow, incomprehensibly powerful slide of enormous glaciers as they made their way towards the sea, a theory adopted by most geologists today. This was in stark contrast to the accepted contemporary explanation that a mighty earthquake had formed the Great Valley. Muir would have the chance to experience one of these earthquakes on March 26th of 1872, when he was awoken in the middle of the night by a 7.4 magnitude tremor centered around Lone Pine. The quake leveled almost all of the settlers' lodges in the town, killing 27. Muir jumped out of bed and watched as large slides of talus boulders rumbled down the flanks of the peaks surrounding the valley. Suddenly out of the strange silence and strange motion, there came a tremendous roar. The Eagle Rock on the south wall, about a half mile up the valley, gave way, and I saw it falling in thousands of great boulders I had so long been studying, pouring to the valley floor. He reached for higher peaks over the next few years, achieving the first recorded ascent of the 13,156-foot Mount Ritter in October of 1872. He climbed Mount Whitney, the highest peak on the continent outside of Alaska the following year. And he capped off his mountaineering excursions with an unsuccessful attempt at Mount Shasta, a 14,162-foot volcano in the Cascade Range in November of 1874. Though his party was blown off the mountain by fierce snowstorms, Shasta mesmerized him and would become one of his favorite of all the California peaks. Throughout these years, Muir played equal roles the romantic wanderer and the California settler, constantly pulled back and forth between these two ways of life. He loved the freedom and solitude the wilderness offered him, yet also longed for the company of old friends from his Wisconsin days. Jean Carr and her husband Ezra moved to the Bay Area in 1869, but Muir was off doing what he loved in the High Sierra, and they would not meet again for a few years. But the Carr's move to California would be the driving force that enabled John Muir of the Mountains to become John Muir the activist. Their links to the social and political elite in the Bay Area, and Jean's admiration for John's work and the man himself, would be the key to the John Muir most know of today. Gene acted as the powerful reference for him as he secured jobs as a guide for rich tourists around Yosemite. In September of 1871, his work on glaciers was sent to the New York Tribune. This would be the first of many articles he would write to East Coast newspapers that would make a name for him nationwide. 
He gave his first public lecture in January of 1876 in Sacramento, and by this time had contacts to write articles for several California papers and magazines. By this point in his life, his faith had departed from the fundamental doctrine he was raised on, but he never truly abandoned the Christian faith, writing in his journal on one occasion that his travels through the wild had not found the devil, but God and the religion of Christ. Yet he was no doubt greatly influenced by such Darwinian disciples like the botanist Asa Gray, the foremost voice for the theory of evolution in the United States at the time. Much like Muir though, Gray still believed in an all-encompassing creator. Darwinian evolution, where species are evolving without any particular direction, just trying to figure out how they're best fitted to the natural environment in which they are, changing their morphology to adapt to it, all of those sorts of things. And people are asking is, you know, well, where's God in this picture? Because we have this, this other view of God of a very direct and very directed and very quick creation of the world that then people envision as being a pretty static kind of creation that's only been around for a short period of time. For him then, he recognized that just reading the Bible wasn't doing it because those Scottish Presbyterians could read the Bible, but they were fighting over all these little minor doctrinal points. And so for him, it was falling back on St. Augustine's two revelations theology, which essentially said there's the Bible and then there's creation. Both of them are the revelation of God. Muir and his group became the first Euro-Americans to visit Glacier Bay in Alaska's southeast corner in 1876, and the sights would again inspire the divine imagery in his writings. Beneath the frosty shadows of the fjord, we stood hushed and awestrucken, gazing at the holy vision. And had we seen the heavens open and God made manifest, our attention could not have been more tremendously strained. When the highest peak began to burn, it did not seem to be steeped in sunshine, however glorious, but rather as if it had been thrust into the body of the sun itself. He's always an integrator between science and religion, uh, seeing that they're not separate things and they're not divisive from one another, but they're the same thing. They are one talking about process, one talking about purpose. Um, you know, one talking about technique and the other talking about the technician behind it all. And so it's a, it's a, a very integrative approach to faith and science. He would make two subsequent trips to Alaska in the following two years, recording over 300 glaciers along the Stikine River. In April of 1880, he would marry Louis Stretzel, whom he had met through Jean Carr. The couple moved into the Stretchel Fruit Ranch in California's Alhambra Valley, and Muir would take something of a sabbatical from his wanderings for several years, during which Louis gave birth to two daughters. Eventually he married the daughter of a fruit farmer, Polish immigrant doctor, uh, who had lots of vineyards and orchards near San Francisco. And this girl falls in love with him, her parents fall in love with him, they had had a son named John, who died, so that made them very sympathetic for this guy. They saw, saw him as an, a replacement for their own son, as well as becoming a son-in-law. So he had a life, their marriage gave, became father to two girls, and that changes a lot for him. 
marriage, you know, changes men, but it certainly changed John Muir. Now he lives in a much different kind of setting. He makes, meets different people. It opens up for him a social community in California and elsewhere, eventually all over the United States and beyond, that makes him part of an upper middle class or wealthy elite. After his children were old enough, Muir set out for more of America's great wildernesses he had yet to see. He visited the Pacific Northwest, climbing the 14,411-foot glacial giant Mount Rainier in 1888, where a mountaineer's camp perched 10,000 feet up now bears his name. He made his fourth visit to Alaska in the summer of 1890, where he traveled on a glacier in Glacier Bay that would one day bear his name as well. He fell into a shallow crevasse in the glacier, having to self-extricate through great toil. Into this I suddenly plunged, after crossing thousands of really dangerous crevasses. But never before had I encountered a danger so completely concealed. Down I plunged over head and ears, but of course bobbed up again, and after a hard struggle, succeeded in dragging myself out over the farther side. He was now a 52 year old man, and after visiting some of the grandest and most precious wilderness the continent had to offer, he jumped with both feet into the thing that would truly mark his legacy, his activism. After writing the articles The Treasures of the Yosemite and Features of the Promised National Park, published by the Century Magazine in 1890, the US Congress passed a bill to make Yosemite a national park on September 30th, 1890. Much to his dismay though, the bill left the Yosemite Valley under California state control. It would take over a decade and a friendship with a very powerful U.S. president for Muir to persuade politicians to include the valley within the national park boundary. He became active in trying to protect and extend the Yosemite Valley into national park status. It wasn't the first one, it was the second. And then he went on from there to lay out other park ideas, Kings Canyon, Sequoia, Petrified National Monument in Arizona, well, he had a lot of influence on parks. Rainier, all these parks in the West, Alaska, Glacier Bay, etc., were in some sense inspired by him. He was an advocate. He wrote a book entitled Our National Parks. So he became a national political figure in the, in the parks movement. By this time, politicians around the country had started defining boundaries to protect national parks and national forests. And these areas set aside from private use would reach some 278 million acres, over one and a half times the size of the state of Texas. But with the heavy government control over these national lands, some began to discuss the need for some kind of private organization to keep the government honest. Politicians had acted on behalf of their constituents and pursued their wishes, but how long could they be trusted to keep their word? Muir was recruited by Professor Willis Lynn Jepson from the University of California, Berkeley. He, Muir, and attorney Warren Olney launched the Sierra Club in May of 1892, in the image of the Appalachian Mountain Club. Muir was elected as president and remained in the position for the rest of his life. Their first goal included establishing Glacier National Park in Montana and the Mount Rainier National Park in Washington State. Over the next decade, Muir would continue his preservation efforts, but he now had a different method for garnering support for his cause. Though he longed to experience more of the wild personally, 
He could not ignore the success his preservation had achieved through his social and political relationships, and so he pursued these relationships further to this end. He met forest conservationist Gifford Pinchot in New York, and the two became friends. The two even camped together in the Grand Canyon, but the friendship would not last long due to the two rival factions of the conservation movement they each represented. Muir believed in pure preservationism. Pinchot lobbied for the use of public lands if they were used for the good of mankind. Pinchot was a utilitarian, believing that conservation should be pragmatic and that it should be to the benefit of the majority. There's a fairly standard distinction between conservation and preservation, and we see that sort of played out in the distinction between the National Forest Service and the National Park Service. But Muir exemplifies the preservationist side of this, how to protect landscapes for their various purposes. And Gifford Pinchot, on the other side, is the exemplar and the, the real passionate defender of this idea of conservation. Conservation is sort of the big umbrella perspective and preservation is a subset of that. And so Muir certainly believes that the landscape has a lot of different uses, but he also believes that there is sort of a highest use for certain special parts of the landscape, the most pristine, the most protected, the, the least corrupted. And that was a spiritual use. You know, in the, in the 19th century, people had this, this real strong belief that, you know, there were these places high in the mountains that were you know, completely natural, untouched by human beings, uncorrupted in any way. And so they revealed the direct creation of God, the fingerprints of God and all of their relationships between species and all of those sorts of things. And that was what Muir was hoping to preserve in that preservationist movement, these examples or these exemplars of kind of a Garden of Eden state, whether that be in the Sierras or wherever else one might find those. Muir embarked on his seventh trip to Alaska in the summer of 1899, alongside fellow naturalist and conservationist John Burroughs. Burroughs would later comment on Muir that he was probably the truest lover of nature, as she appears in the woods, mountains, glaciers that we have yet had. In March of 1903, Muir received word that a high-profile man from Washington, D.C. had requested to meet him and tour the Yosemite Valley with him. Muir had another trip planned, but when he received a personal letter from the man himself, he could not turn it down. I wish to write you personally to express the hope that you will be able to take me through the Yosemite. I do not want anyone with me but you, and I want to drop politics absolutely for four days and just be out in the open with you. Sincerely yours, Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt had taken over the presidency after the assassination of William McKinley a year and a half earlier, and Muir met T.R. and his entourage at the train station in Pasadena. The two soon departed the rest of the group and disappeared on horseback into the Yosemite National Park. There were kindred spirits. A few weeks before their meeting, the president had signed an executive order to establish the Pelican Island National Wildlife Refuge in Florida, the first of its kind. In a speech to Congress, Roosevelt said, The forest reserves should be set apart forever for the use and benefit of our people as a whole and not sacrificed to the short-sighted greed of a few. Muir enjoyed his time with Roosevelt immensely. He wrote to his wife, I had a perfectly glorious time with the president in the mountains. 
I never before had a more interesting, hearty and manly companion. And in a letter to a friend, Camping with the President was a memorable experience. I fairly fell in love with him. The trip had, of course, a political motive. Roosevelt wanted to be seen with Muir in the national park he had helped preserve, and their famous picture standing on the edge of a 3,200 foot cliff at Glacier Point was evidence of this. Muir had his motives too. Making friends in high places was key to the cause of his preservationism, and the leader of the free world was the ultimate in this. That said, the two men genuinely enjoyed each other's company, and deeply admired one another, and would remain friends for the rest of their lives. Muir voted for Roosevelt in the election of 1904, and when his wife Louis died in August of 1905, Roosevelt sent the following sympathies. There is nothing that I can say that will be of any comfort. Get out among the mountains and the trees, friend, as soon as you can. Roosevelt was speaking from experience. After the death of his mother and his wife on the very same day, he retreated to the badlands of South Dakota where he found a passion for the rugged lifestyle and protection of the wild lands. Muir's life was shaken again, quite literally, just a few months later, with the great 1906 San Francisco earthquake. The quake killed as many as 3,000 people, destroying some 25,000 buildings and broke water and gas lines. The subsequent fires laid waste to the city. The Stretzel House was damaged, lifting off its foundation. Muir found that his previous elation at the experience with an earthquake in his early days in the Yosemite completely eluded him now, and he faced the realization of just how much misfortune and calamity nature can dispense on mankind. The final decade of his life would be a frustrating one, as he and the Sierra Club were embroiled in a vicious battle with the federal government over the damming and flooding of the Hetch Hetchy Valley. This was a direct result of the San Francisco water supply debacle after the 1906 earthquake. By May of 1908, it was announced that the decision to flood the valley to create a reservoir to supply the metropolis with water would go ahead. President Roosevelt persuaded his Secretary of the Interior, James Garfield, to only go ahead with creating a reservoir out of the Hetch Hetchy Valley after the water source of Lake Eleanor had been consumed first. But even the Sierra Club itself started to falter on the issue, with some members speaking out publicly in favour of the reservoir project. In a vote, 161 of the 750 members voted in favour. Congressional hearings went on without any major victories on either side, but with the election of Democrat Woodrow Wilson in November of 1913, the fight was as good as lost. After Congress passed the Raker Bill, Wilson signed it into law on December 13th, 1913. Lake Eleanor was dammed in 1918 and it was only a matter of time for the valley just to the east. In fact, the hydroelectric power generated by the Eleanor Dam was sold to finance the larger O'Shaughnessy Dam that would dam the Tuolumne River, forming the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir in 1923. So Muir was heartbroken that these politicians went back and forth and that someone who spoke this, as Roosevelt did, who seemed to have his heart in the right place, would not make this kind of decision, especially when he was going out of office. He could have done this and so forth, and Muir would have been ecstatic, but he never really deeply criticized Roosevelt because I think he still admired and saw in him a man who'd done a lot of good for the country. 
but on something that Muir considered extremely important. Roosevelt failed him. Muir was, of course, devastated. He fumed. These temple destroyers, devotees of ravaging commercialism, seem to have perfect contempt for nature. And instead of lifting their eyes to the god of the mountains, lift them to the almighty dollar. In Muir's final year of 1914, he still had dreams of seeing wild places he had yet to lay eyes on. In a letter to friend Catherine Hooker, he wrote, I would love to see Athens and Rome, a few of the Greenland and Antarctic ice floods, then I'd willingly let my legs rest. But this was not to be. In the summer of 1914, a Bosnian Serb shot and killed Archduke Franz Ferdinand of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, leading to World War. With the brutality that was about to be unleashed on the world stage, perhaps it is a small mercy that Muir did not live long after war commenced. The modernized weapons of war would go on to lay a path of scorched earth making the war-torn scenes of the southern United States Muir had walked through in 1967 look like a paradise. Muir had come down with influenza earlier in the year, and by December he was constantly burdened with lung ailments. He developed pneumonia, and on December 23rd, his daughter Helen sent him to the South Hope Street Hospital in Los Angeles. Early on Christmas Eve, alone in his hospital room, John Muir died. His body was brought back to the Alhambra Valley, where he was buried next to his wife, Louis. Muir is a hard man to pin down when reflecting on his legacy. His beliefs held many contradictions, such as his faith. His writings at times reach back to the Christian orthodoxy of his childhood, and at other times, depart completely from it towards pantheism. He had a complete disdain for too much emphasis on accumulated wealth, even though he hobnobbed with social elites. And at his death, his estate was worth over $4 million in today's money. Many, including high-ranking members of the Sierra Club, have sought to distance themselves from Muir in recent times, citing microscopic portions of his writing that appear out of place and troublesome to today's culture. So I'm not sure that we can we can use 21st century judgments on a 19th century man, but I think we can learn from the judgments that the 19th century man makes and ask if they're still accurate in the 21st century. I mean, I'm a historian, right? So historians are always trying to figure out the context and trying to let people live in the context in which they live, but not just venerate the, the past, but to say, what can we learn from this? What's, what's valuable in this? And I think there are multiple lessons that we can learn from that past. Somebody picks up one of Muir's writings and finds a sentence they don't like, and they lift them out of the context they're in. They judge them by the standards of, you know, the, this, this decade we're in, not by the decade that Muir was talking in, 1870s, a hundred years ago and more. And then they begin to call him things like racist, whatever that means, without understanding how complicated this guy was in his message. And they pass over, they simply ignore what they don't want to hear and what they don't want to see. And the plate of that kind of mentality, that kind of shallow, uneducated, 
knee-jerk reaction, it seems to me, is, is to violate what we should be doing. We should be helping people understand the past and its complexities, and that we have to read the full text. I would say there is a hidden agenda in some of this. It is, again, about power. The people wanting power don't have any. My view is that the Sierra Club should be open to as many people of color in places of power as they can get. No doubt about that. But the way to get power in a country is not to dismiss and ridicule everybody in the past. But also, I think this is what is at stake. If the Sierra Club manages to destroy Muir, they are also hurting a fundamentally important idea, and that has to do with preserving and protecting and caring for the natural world. Our future generations are not going to forgive us if we let the national parks degenerate or if we let wildlife and biodiversity degenerate, etc. That was Muir's driving interest. And to get at Muir and to dethrone him or cancel him or whatever the word is, uh, for some people, is about changing the politics and the morality of what environmentalism means. And uh, they better be very damn careful about that, I think. For the outdoor adventurer, a great lesson Muir can give is this. To settle down and put down roots once you have explored and wandered for a time, as Muir did on the Stretzel Ranch. You tend to find something in those who spend their whole lives wandering. A longing for something they've never been able to find. A restlessness that they can't quite put their finger on. Something being alone in the wilderness cannot quench. This is because no matter how restless the soul is, and how put off it is by the hustle and bustle of our modern way of life, it still needs close, intimate human connection. Muir realized this, and at the end of his life, it was not his hiking companions who cared for him as he struggled with pneumonia. It was his loving daughter, Helen. I really believe that the ultimate um, legacy is the American National Park System. Establishing the, the Yosemite National Park out of the forest reserves um, and then giving people the idea that the more of these national parks that we create around the country, the more opportunity people have to go out and have recreation in the face of all the pressures of this industrializing, mechanizing world, that that has value, that that, that land, although people have argued that, you know, those are worthless lands from a, a material perspective, but they certainly were valuable from a, a soul perspective, a spiritual perspective. And so, you know, his, his contribution to creating that is a huge legacy. It's a global legacy. Perhaps the best way to think of Muir's legacy is what the California legislature did a year after his death in putting aside money to construct the John Muir Trail. Finished in 1938, it runs 200 miles from his beloved Yosemite Valley to Mount Whitney. Thousands each year now have a chance to walk the same valleys, cliffsides, and snowfields Muir once walked, and if they look up from their smartphones and find a moment to take in the wild through all their senses, they will be able to see these precious areas of wilderness as places to enjoy, protect, and share. Whether it is a trail in the heart of Yosemite, 
a small mountaineer's camp set between rockfall hazards on Mount Rainier, or the trail bearing his name in his homeland of Scotland. Muir's life and his writings can inspire us today to put down our distractions, explore the wild places and creatures of the globe, and to do it in the spirit of brotherhood with our fellow man, ensuring their longevity for our children and grandchildren. Our crude civilization engenders a multitude of wants, and lawgivers are ever at their wit's end devising. Yet few think of pure rest, or of the healing power of nature. This episode of Virtuous Men was written and recorded by Jamie Adams and edited by Scott Einig. Quotations taken from Muir's writings found in A Thousand Mile Walk to the Gulf, My First Summer in the Sierra, and The Yosemite. Readings of portions of letters from Teddy Roosevelt by Larry Einig. And a special thanks to Donald Worcester and Dennis Williams for their expert insight on Muir. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a rating and leave a review in the comments section. And don't forget to check out more Virtuous Men on our Instagram page at virtuous underscore men and give us a follow. Tune in next time for episode 3, where we discover the initiative of Major Jordan Northrup, United States Marine Corps veteran and author of The War Inside, Finding Victory Over Alcohol. <laughs>